This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey there, stackers. I bet you're not used to hearing us on a Tuesday morning, but here we are working hard for you so that hopefully you get a week off. I'm Joe Salci. I average Joe money on Twitter. Across the card table from me, the guy who's not the fake OG on Twitter, it's the OG. Also working yep. on the week off. Uh, not much, man. We are having a fun, fun week here, of course, in the basement. Uh, everybody's trying to stay away from Doug, who's totally uh, chowed into that sausage bread that mom made. And uh, he, he smells disgusting, doesn't he? Uh, it's just oozing out of him now. It is. It is not good. Time to go for a run here in just a little bit. But uh, for those of you that are working this week... Thank you very much for keeping the economy running for those of us taking a week off. We really appreciate what you do here in the times when uh, nobody's at work. And by the, but when I was a financial planner, this was my favorite week to go in just for a couple hours. I remember I would stop at the local coffee shop. I'd grab just a coffee and a muffin and I'd go to my office and there was nobody there. And I would just clean out files with music on. Mm-hmm. I would do it. This is a great week. to. It was a great week to be at work. Yeah, except when you work at home, then you absolutely <laughs> positively have to take a few days off. Yes. It feels so different working for it is it is true. Uh, if you're new to what we're doing this week, this is a week of rewind episodes. Those are episodes that we've recorded previously. Uh, last year, we gave you our seven years leading up to the turn of the century year by year. What were the lessons you should have learned? You can go back a year ago and listen to those. This year, we thought to keep it PG-13 or better, that we would share all of the uh, quirkiest episodes we've ever had on the show. And we try to sometimes come at financial planning from a little bit different way. And so we're counting them down. Number seven was a forensic accountant, a financial spy. Number six, how to live a longer, more fulfilling life. What can nuns teach us about finance? Number five, Lindsay Goldberg and lessons you learn from dominatrixes. We go from nuns to dominatrixes on the show. There's a dominatrixes, dominate, dominatrix. We better get this right because they might get mad and you don't want the dominatrix to get mad. Number four, lessons from a documentary about a 3,100 mile marathon around the same New York City block, which brings us to today. We love talking about history on the show and we've done a lot of historical shows. Oh, gee, I'm thinking about the one, remember the history of credit in the United mm-hmm. States? Yep. And about how people disliked people that ran the credit bureaus because A, they could be paid off back in the day. People would pay them off to slander people they didn't like in town. And they, all, and they also, if they didn't like somebody, so they were always getting bribes and all this, the history of credit. We also, this year, we talked about George Washington. Remember that one? Last year, P.T. Barnum. Okay, that one I do remember. But I think my favorite one of all is uh, one that we did back in 2018. This is from March 2018, so about two and a half, just over two and a half years ago. We spoke to Dr. Woody Holton about one of the greatest early American investors This book, by the way, won the Bancroft Prize, and uh, Dr. Holton talked to us about Abigail Adams, and we called this episode Abigail Adams' Financial Badass, and man, was she a badass. Not only, OG, did she invest in some serious junk bonds, but she also 
at a time when women weren't allowed to be investors, basically told her husband to shove off that she was managing, she was managing the family's finances. Uh, also in this episode, you're going to hear about a USA Today piece asking back in 2018, will the stock market crash? And believe it or not, we answered, of course it will at some point. And we, so we got it right. Yes. Yes. Here's another interesting thing. We, we also talked to Jamie Wise from the Buzz Index. The Buzz Index, by the way, phenomenal results the whole time that the Buzz Index happened. We're going to play that for posterity's sake. The Buzz Index went out of business. They returned all the money to cash and whatever brokerage account if you were lucky enough to own the Buzz Index back then. Another interesting story, OG, the index continued to operate. The product went away. Van Eck uh, recently just filed to bring the buzz index back. So Jamie Wise, I don't think Jamie Wise is involved anymore in the buzz index, but uh, but there is an index refiling. We just heard about that maybe uh, in the last three weeks. So that's the episode number three on our top seven list. We're down to the top three. Abigail Adams, financial badass. Hit that button, OG. from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and happy National Spinach Day, everyone. Oh, my God, Joe, we're doing Spinach Day now? Real spinach. Spinach Day, Spinach Day, wow. Now that I think about it, and I think about all the ways that Spinach has been a major factor in my life. Well, I'll get back to you when I come up with something. But hey, in better news, check out today's awesome show lineup. First, help us welcome to celebrate Women's History Month, winner of the Bancroft Prize and author of the book, Abigail Adams, Woody Holton. In headlines, we'll talk about this jittery stock market and talk social media with our buzz correspondent, Jamie Wise. Then, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline, answer a lucky listener letter, and wash it all down with my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who are always green with spinach-fueled envy, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-G. Well, not of Doug. <laughs> Definitely not of Doug. Spinach has grown on me in the years has it you as well absolutely yeah i could eat spinach all day now but back in the popeye days oh about eating it all day Mm, but it is the long lost cousin of iceberg lettuce it is (laughs) it's the it's the spicier juicier step cousin i don't know hey everybody I'm Joe Salcia. I ever Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me again for another week. It's the one and only OG. The OG. I am so happy that we're talking about Abigail Adams today before Women's History Month gets behind us because I don't know if you know this and Professor Woody Holton is going to be explaining all this to us, but Abigail Adams was an investing badass, like just a total badass. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. And we've got all that today. Jamie Wise also coming down to the basement to talk about the social media buzz, but we got a headline first. So let's move. Hello darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline is apropos, given what happened in the stock market last week. A little jittery, OG. Down, up, down. Will this, this comes to us from USA Today. Will the stock market crash? Yes. Here's what to do now. This is written by Diana Yochum. Uh, one minute, all economic indicators sitting pretty, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average is hitting record highs. The next, blammo, we're in the throes of a stock market sell-off or right-sizing or whatever you want to call it. Semantics is probably the last thing in anybody's mind when you're watching chunks of your 401k and IRA evaporate. People definitely felt this way late last week, OG. I love the flowery language, but okay. Yes. I'm watching it evaporate. Just wow. as it did recently, stock market's going to decline again, but no one has the luxury of getting a calendar notice announcing the time and magnitude. So what do you do? 
This says, to prevent a knee-jerk reaction during periods of stock market volatility, follow these tips. I thought we'd run these tips by our resident expert, OG, and right. uh, see what you think. Number one, trust and diversification. When a market decline hits, your results may vary, perhaps for the better, if you've invested money across different baskets of asset classes. Love it. Yep, that's true. If everything goes up or down at the same time, you are not diversified. Right, which is funny because when clients would come into my office to see if we've hit our benchmarks and if the plan's going the way we want, part of that is a portfolio review. I didn't make that a big part because we can't do a lot about the stock market, but we'd right. look at all the funds and Mike- Oh, this one's gone down a whole bunch. We should get rid of it. Yes, at every time. And then we'd have to re-explain that, no, 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 we don't want them all going up at the same time. Well, diversification, when it does what you're talking about there, when some things underperform or some things overperform, you know, an average, it's got a built-in dollar cost averaging strategy, even if you're not adding money, right? Because now you've got this portion of your account that's done really well, and you've got a portion account that hasn't done as well. Then you can just sell off some of the profit and add to the thing that's done a little uh, less well. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying it. And uh, you're buying buckets and th you know of, of stuff on sale. You know, the question on everybody's mind, though, right now, as you're saying this is, okay, I've got this thing that's supposedly on sale. How do I know that it's not just a crappy fund? Well, that's a great question. If you're like most new investors, and certainly the, the data supports that new money from new investors is going into indexes and ETFs, then you're not comparing yourself to anything, right? If, if you want to buy an S&P 500 fund, you go buy an S&P 500 fund and that's your fund. It's by definition, it's not crappy. <laughs> it is, it is what it is. It is mediocre. Yeah, it is average yes. minus of cost of some kind. So, you know, you don't have to really worry about that. If you've got active fund management, you know, maybe in your 401k, right? And you don't have options of ETFs or lower cost products in your uh, 401k plan yet. You want to compare it against its peers. And that's the biggest thing. People look at a fund and say, well, this one's down 20% and this one is up 10. So that must mean the down 20 is the sucky one. But the down 21 might be grouped with all the other wrong funds, right? And you're comparing apples and oranges here. So you want to compare all of the same funds together and then my rule of thumb was always kind of top 50%. And uh, the top half, you're probably better than average. And a place to do that? definition. How do people find that information? Oh, easy. I'm Morningstar. Yep. Yeah, right mor Morningstar.com. Morningstar Number two on here, remember your appetite for risk. Basically saying, hey, man, if you say you're a risky investor on the way up, it's a two-way street, pal. Just hang on for the down because the, the back up ride's going to come along with it. Yeah. This is, the I think, the hardest one for people because especially recently – you know, over the last two or three years, the stock market's done really well, especially in the United States. So everybody's like, yeah, risk. Of course I could take all the risk. And then you get that, uh, you know, minus 10% week or something like that. And you go, Whoa, I want to change my mind. You can't. Now is not this. You can't change your mind in a bear market or a decline. That's the bad time to change. You have to change it when everything's good. Number three on here, know what you own and why. And this is another one that frustrated me when I was an advisor was that I had some clients that just didn't want to know. They're like, no, no, I really don't want to know how my asset allocation works. Yeah, but when things start going down, if you understand, it's it's like my favorite analogy, I think, OG, was, was when uh, I first started flying in a plane, I was scared to death. I was afraid every time. And, you know, you'd have those little flaps on the wings start coming down, and the plane would start listing off to the right. And I'm sure that the pilots up front having a heart attack, there's warning bells going, boop, 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 the whole plane's going down, right? Then I started goofing around with a friend of mine, on uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator. And I realized there's this whole system, used to be anyway, called VORs. And they're these beacons where planes would, fl Still there. Yep. Pl planes would fly the system. They'd go to a beacon, and then those flaps would come down, and they'd turn to the next beacon. Then they'd turn. And it's funny. I went from feeling like, oh, my God, we're all going to die every time the plane turned to, okay, we just hit the next beacon. Like, I knew just – I didn't have to know everything, but I knew just enough about it to know that when it got bumpy – I wasn't going to have to worry about it. Yeah. And you're about 50% right on your analogy too, by the way, but uh, <laughs> close. <laughs> what the, but I like it. Are, are, are you saying they are panicking? They are panicking? Uh, probably. Yeah, yeah, they are. They totally oh my goodness. We hit one of those beacons on the ground. What do we do? Turn left now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Number four, be ready to buy the dip. This is a big one because instead of being a passenger, now you're on the attack, and I really like that. Well, this is that, that that phrase, right? When somebody calls our office or you hear somebody on Twitter say, oh, oh, how, how do I react to da-da-da-da-da? Great investors don't react, right? They act. And so if uh, today it is 5% less expensive than it was a week ago, it makes today a good deal. You bought it a week ago at a higher price. Now, that doesn't mean that tomorrow it's not going to be Five percent less than today. You can't, nobody knows that. But uh, but if you got a little dry powder and you see these ten percent swings, that's a good opportunity to deploy a little capital. Number five then is get a second opinion. Basically, if you're going to panic, no, if if, not do that. if 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 you're going to panic, don't just keep it to yourself. Talk to other people and panic say together. Say hey, what do you think I should do here? Nothing. Like using your plane analogy, you get nudge the guy next to you and go, we're going down, right? <laughs> this whole thing? <laughs> Probably not. I will link to the, these on the show notes at stackybenjamins.com. And walking down the stairs, our social media correspondent, the one and only Jamie Wise is back. How are you, man? I'm good. Can you hear me walking down the stairs? Yes, it's great to be here back in the basement with you, Joe. How are you? I, well, well, I'm great. And uh, by the way, people have wondered when the market starts to get bumpy, right? We have said before that there's a place for active investing and that the world of active investing is changing. Talking to people like you and Phil Back about this on uh, many occasions. How has it been? The market has clearly gotten choppy, Jamie. What, what have we seen from these, uh, well, from you guys? There's an old expression that uh, many investors are aware of, careful what you wish for, right? Jeez, I wish things would just sell off or Vol would pick up and give me an opportunity. <laughs> but we were there putting our hands up saying, bring it on, because we know it's important with especially a new technology and using some artificial intelligence insights to help us choose stocks. We need that to be proven across different market environments, and, and we just haven't had that since we've launched over the last two years. February really gave Buzz a chance to prove its value in volatile, volatile markets, and wow, did we experience some volatility last month, and Buzz continued its streak of outperformance. I'm happy to report. So it's doing exactly what we expected it to do. Those stocks that exhibit the best investor sentiment have the most built-up, pent-up demand behind them. They should be cushioned. In those types of environments. Why? Because it gives people an opportunity to add to their positions. They're not going to fall as much as the market. And certainly in February, we saw that where Buzz uh, was able to outperform even in a down market, beating the S&P by two and a half percent in February alone. Yeah, the market down roughly three and a half percent. That's the P500 that is down about three and a half percent. You guys down roughly one. That's right. Yeah. Uh, year to date, as we record this, we're recording this a little early, but the year to date numbers are eye popping. Give me those. Yeah. So, you know, year to date, really, as we're recording, it is 10 and percent for Buzz through to the end of February. So we'll use our month end benchmarks. Buzz up almost eight and a half percent year to date. And that compares to the S&P, which is down, which is up, excuse me, but just less than two percent. So beating the S&P through February by over six and a half percent, better than seven and a half percent on a year to date basis through time of this recording. So all things going in the right direction. Well, here you're here to talk to us about the wisdom of the crowds, and that's what you guys do. Let's talk about the wisdom. What what was the crowd talking about that the S&P 500 missed? Yeah, you know what? When you see volatility, certainly you see an increase in activity straight across the board, whether that's trading activity and, from our perspective, discussion and engagement across online platforms. So we really noticed not only an increase in discussion, but changing sentiments where people really became vocal about the stocks that they liked in these volatile environments, the ones they were looking to add. And for us, maybe surprisingly, maybe not, it was the tech sector, right? It was the larger tech names that we're familiar with. Some of the smaller names, which have really contributed well to buzz, we'll, we'll call Square and Micron smaller names, even though <laughs> right. still large cap equities, but right. small compared to Google or Apple, let's sure. say. But sentiment really notably increased amidst all that volatility. To us, we saw that as a really strong bullish indicator, right? This was not the end of the bull market. 
there was still real strong pent-up demand for these securities. And overall, the community really saw this as an opportunity to get into these stocks. They did. And wow, have they performed since then. Square is an interesting name because as you see the face of retail change, and we've seen job numbers come out, and, and it looks like big companies did better than small companies. Yet Square is doing this interesting thing, Jamie, which is helping these small retailers kind of stay in business. Yeah, what an interesting company this is. And it's not just the retailers. It's also you know directly to the consumers. Right, Square has right. a, a really much more diversified business model than most people think, right? We all think of Square as that little dongle at the end of you know some retailer's phone. And it, it, how easy is that to swipe your credit card through a great product? But it's more than a one-trick pony. They do direct lending. They're really starting to compete directly with banks, right? They're allowing consumers to take direct cash deposits into their accounts People are trying to figure out what kind of company will Square become. Is it a bank at the end of the day? Is it just a payment processing company? Is it a lending company? Whatever it is, it's certainly firing on all cylinders across all of those verticals. And people are catching on and and the stocks and shareholders are being rewarded for it. Are you seeing any play lately with all of the tariff talk? I mean, lately, not just the president, of course, talking tariffs, but also Elon Musk jumping on that train on one end. Lots of people on the other side, of course, and you don't know what's politics, what's real. Uh, yeah. But, but are we, what are we seeing the crowd say about uh, tariffs and maybe some of these steel companies? It's a great question, Joe. I'm glad you asked it because it's exactly why our approach to sentiment is important here. These these tariffs have been in the news. There's a lot of volatility, a lot of really short-term sentiment that you can find from that, but it's not changing longer-term perceptions. And that's what we're really focused on here in Buzz is capturing those longer-term trends. And you see it, and we've talked about this before with you, these idea of diminishing returns of influence, right? So Donald Trump, when he talks about tariffs, it gets a reaction instantly in the market. That's very short-term sentiment, but that fades very quickly because Let's be fair. He talks about a lot of things and it takes time for those things to, you know, translate through. Will they actually happen? Do we believe what he is saying will be as meaningful as he indicates when he says it? Right. And and I think people look through that now a little bit faster than they did the first time he talked about General Motors or Boeing, you know, before he was right when he was elected. Right. You know, right around that time. So and if it's sure enough, you know, he, he talks about these tariffs, but then when they go through they're really softened down, right? Like right. they're not going to apply to Canada, for example. Well, you have a pretty good trading relationship with steel. I'm Canadian, of course, right? So, you know, how meaningful will these tariffs be? Is this really as strong a protectionist policy as he first indicated in that first, you know, press conference or tweet or however he decides to communicate these things? That diminishing return of influence, the crowd sees through it. We learn quickly. We're all intelligent individuals. Collectively, we really get the insight. I don't think right now we're not seeing longer term changes in sentiment that will make meaningful changes to you know, U.S. Steel or other producers, domestic producers within the portfolio. But well, we'll see. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to go to this uh, space in general before we have to say goodbye, which is when we look at the S&P versus other active funds, it looks like everybody's up. They're, they're not up as much as you are, but it looks like, you know, this idea that active management's changing, Jamie, it's kind of working across the face of the kind of AI-driven active uh, management community. Sure. You know, we were, I think, first out there in the marketplace showing and, and, and attempting to show people that there can really be value in using insights from, from AI-based processes to source securities for your portfolio and that over time those things should outperform. Well, we knew we weren't going to be the only one forever. And there's been a couple other funds that have launched in the last year. So there's AIEQ. That's the ticker symbol for an ETF that uses IBM's Watson as its AI to choose stocks. And there's one up here in Canada uh, called the ticker symbol is Mind. And they also have developed their own proprietary AI. And, and that AI chooses stocks to invest in. And sure, they're up on a year-to-date basis, You know, right through the time we're talking here. Mind is up 2%. AIEQ is up 4.5%. So they are showing that they can... You know, keep up with that S&P return for the year, AIQ doing a little bit better, but neither of them keeping up to the 10.5% of buzz. <laughs> Why is that? So, and this is important. We've talked yeah. about this, right? We know that AI models, just like human beings, just like star portfolio managers, although AI can handle a lot more data than any human being or any one star portfolio manager, they need time to learn and adapt, right? And we've had that two-year head start. So, 
as we see more data, as we're able to pull more data into our models, as people across online platforms talk more and more about what they're doing in their investment portfolio, that gives us a richer data set to extract insight from and allows us, puts us in a position to then pick the best from that expanded data set. And I think that's really what's been contributing to the outperformance. Yeah, well, it's really exciting to see. I love this whole idea, as you know, of uh, AI-driven active management, but uh, also great to see you guys just killing it against, you know, what clearly some people would see as the competition. I I think there's probably room for all of you, but you guys are, are just smoking them. So uh, a couple quick things before we leave. If you want more about uh, the Buzz Index, head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash B-U-Z-Z, and uh, that will tell you more about the index. Uh, it trades under ticker symbol B-U-Z. And just a disclaimer for everybody, in my wife and my spouse Cheryl's portfolio, we both own the Buzz Index. So have to tell you that obviously right for us, but doesn't make it right for you. Jamie Wise, thanks a ton for hanging out with us again today, man. Great being back here with you, Joe. Look forward to catching up very soon. Thanks a ton again to Jamie for coming down to the basement. Hey, uh, I think our lesson, obviously we got plenty of lessons from Jamie, but our lessons with uh, last week's stock market, stock market gets bumpy, OG. Don't panic. Go on the attack, man. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Yeah, you got the wrong lesson. I'm about to call up uh, Dr. Woody Holton on my dad's shortwave. He is the foremost expert in Abigail Adams. And it's funny, when I talk to a friend of mine, Liz Covert, who's been on this show, she's a historian in Boston who runs an excellent podcast called Ben Franklin's World. Whenever I see her at podcasting conferences, we always talk about we're the, we're, you know, we're the Ben Franklin podcasters, uh, you and Liz and I, OG. So... I was talking to her about Abigail Adams, and she's like, well, I'd love to talk to you about her, but I know the guy who is the person, and he's incredible. He was the 2000 Merrill Curdy Award winner from the Organization of American Historians for his book, Force Founders. In 2007, he was a National Book Award finalist for his book, Unruly Americans and the Origins of the Constitution. In 2008, he uh, scored the Guggenheim Fellowship for those, quote, who have demonstrated exceptional capacity for productive scholarship or exceptional creative ability in the arts. And of course, the big boy in 2010, he won the Bancroft Prize, uh, which is awarded to historians for his excellent work on Abigail Adams. And we're about to talk to him about Mrs. Adams on the shortwave. Let's say hello to Dr. Woody Holton. And on my dad's shortwave, it's Dr. Woody Holton. Glad you could join us today. Yeah, really good to talk to you, Jeff. How did you first become acquainted with Abigail Adams? I mean, as the guy who wrote the book, Abigail Adams, when did your thirst for finding out about Abigail Adams begin? I was doing another book on a totally different topic on the role of bond speculators in bringing about the U.S. Constitution. Long story short, I needed one of these guys. It's, it can be a really boring topic for people, bond speculators. So I was trying to find one of these guys who was really well documented so I could use him to kind of put a face on all the others. And there weren't enough things about this guy. I mean, this guy, maybe I had letters, but no financial account. And then I found one of these really shrewd bond speculators who really was well uh, documented, and it turned out to be Abigail Adams. <laughs> she, during the Revolutionary War, bought up all of these government bonds at a fraction of their face value and eventually was able to redeem them at pretty close to face value, and she made a killing off the Revolutionary War. There couldn't have been that many women investors at the time. Well, interesting point. If you go to Britain, you would see lots of women investors uh, because, uh, you know, your husband dies and he leaves you a bunch of property and you don't want to, uh, for say he's a slave merchant or something like that. And you don't want to be involved in a business that you may not know very well. So you might buy British government bonds, which like our U.S. government bonds today, nice, safe investments. You might make 4% a year. But what Abigail Adams was doing was something completely different, which is the word speculator. You could use the word, the term junk bond trader. She's betting on bonds that might end up worthless, but if the 
if her ship comes in, she's going to make a, a huge windfall, and that's what happened. Would that be a correlation today to like someone investing in Bitcoin? Yes, to the extent that I understand Bitcoin, which is not very much. <laughs> yes, yes, and and they went up and down, uh, like uh, as Bitcoin did. For instance, in response to U.S. government bonds were very low at the end of 1776, as General Gordon Wallace uh, sort of shooed General Washington and his army across New Jersey. And literally, one of the reasons that Washington crossed the Delaware on Christmas night, December 25th, 1776, and attacked. Trenton, New Jersey, one of his motivations for doing that was to raise the value of U.S. government bonds. Obviously, he also wanted to restore the morale of the soldiers, and particularly for the non-soldiers. That is, he wanted to convince other people to enlist in the in the Continental Army, and people got to believe you're going to win before they'll enlist. But he also was trying to enlist investors to get people to buy U.S. government bonds, and that was a huge part of his motivation for attacking the Hessians at Trenton, which he did successfully. You know, the famous story of Washington crossing the Delaware. It's funny how there's always a, a, another motivation that people have never heard about. And I love the fact that bonds were a part of that that move on that particular day. How did Abigail Adams become such a savvy investor? Is it something in her education and her upbringing? Was it the people she hung out with? Yes and yes. But that's a big thing in her upbringing. And I think it's, by the way, what also attracted John Adams to her back in the 1760s when they were courting was that she had an amazing self-confidence. Now, if you read her letters, she'll go through the motions of the false modesty. And she was insecure about the fact that she'd had very little formal education, although she was always quick to point out there was a reason for that, and that was that she was female. But she was a, a very well-educated person, uh, con- even if you don't consider the fact that she didn't get much formal schooling because she was self-educated. She had all these women friends that would write letters to each other, and they educated uh, each other about Shakespeare and about classical history. She even knew uh, something about the Koran. So she had the – we all know there's practical benefits of education, but one of the side benefits is that self-confidence. And so – I'd say the biggest thing that came out of her upbringing, uh, upbringing was her self-confidence. And then, yes, uh, she did have advisors who kind of got her started, uh, an uncle in particular, a doctor uh, for whom Tufts University is named, named Cotton Tufts. And so he advised her. But I got to tell you, that's at the start of the Revolutionary War, 1777 and eight, the early years. He's advising her by the 1780s after the war when the bonds are still really fluctuating which they continued to do until the Constitution. By the 1780s, this guy who had been her advisor, she was advising him. Really? Wow. And was it mostly just bonds, or was she a diversified investor as well? It became mostly bonds, although by the 19th century, you know, she died in 1818. By that time, she, uh, yeah, she was into canals and bank stock and things like that. But bonds were definitely not the first thing. Um, the very first way that she really helped um, her family financially, and, and let me say, compare John Adams to the next couple of presidents, these two Virginians, James Madison, uh, and I mean, first Thomas Jefferson and then James Madison. Both Jefferson and Madison died so deep in debt that their beautiful family estate, Monticello, and then for Madison, Montpelier, had to be sold just to pay off their debts. Contrast that to John Adams, who died rich and debt-free. And the single biggest reason he did that was Abigail Adams's uh, investments. So her first investment came out of a of a tragic as- aspect of her life. Uh, that's how she saw it, and that was that John got sent to France as uh, an American, basically ambassador. They didn't use the term, and she said, "Well, look." You're going to be sending me letters. Why don't you also send me merchandise from France? Uh, because then as now, a lot of Americans were excited about French fashions. But unlike now, there was a British blockade. And so a large percentage of the ships sent over from France to America were captured by the British. And, of course, that made the few things that got through incredibly valuable. At one point, when John had started sending her stuff, you know, a couple of their shipments got captured by the British, totally lost. And he said, you know, maybe we should give this up. And she goes, no, no, no. 
if one in three arrives, I should be a gainer, which I take to be the 18th century version of you just don't get it, do you, John? <laughs> the whole point is it's a risky business, and because of the high risk, it's high rewards, too. Well, that's what I was going to ask next, is if she and John agreed on their investment philosophies. Were they similar? No. This was one of my favorite discoveries uh, researching her was that if you watch, there's an HBO movie about John Adams, which is really good, but it kind of portrays her as the calming influence and John as, you know, he's played by Paul Giamatti with those bug right, eyes. Right. All excited. And she's, you know, she's like June Cleaver, you know, <laughs> massaging his shoulders. Calm down, John. The opposite was true, both on the emotional level. Everybody that John Adams hated, and he hated just about everybody at some point, you know, Jefferson, Hamilton, everybody but Washington, basically. He was jealous of Washington. Everybody that, that uh, Benjamin Franklin, Hancock, everybody that John Adams hated, Abigail hated more. That carried over into the financial world where he was an incredibly conservative investor. So at one point, he had some money coming to him, and he wrote this at this point, uh, he and she were both over in France. So he wrote a letter to the guy who's handling his affairs back in Massachusetts saying, hey, I got the money coming to me, and I've always wanted to buy Vesey's farm, which is near mine. And um, a couple of days later, she wrote that same financial agent, her husband's financial agent, saying, well, you know what? Uh, let's hold off on buying Vesey's farm. Uh, and eventually gets another letter from John where he starts the letter saying, buy Vesey's farm. Hey, I told you about Vesey's farm. In the letter, here's what he says. Shooing would I have written to Madam, she has made me sick with Vesey's place. You will therefore, and then buy more bonds. She had convinced him in the middle of his writing that letter to switch from his favorite investment, which was in land, to her favorite investment, which was in bonds. The reason he liked land, you may remember from Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hare's father says, land, Scarlett, that's the <laughs> one thing we're fighting for and dying for. It's the one thing that the enemy can't burn you. They can burn your house. They can take all your property, but they can't take your land. And so, you know, we think of that as sort of a southern thing, uh, this desire to be a, like a feudal uh, lord with your with your land. But John, although a classic New Englander in every other respect, he was a very conservative investor and believed that land gave him economic independence, which made him – uh, a person who couldn't be blackmailed, a person who couldn't be bribed, uh, and so forth. It was part of the whole Republican ideal of the 18th century, small r Republican. So it was kind of a political thing for him, a cultural thing for him. But most of all, it's just a safe thing to do. And Abigail would say to him, well, that's all well and good, but you're making 1% a year annual return, and I can make you 20 it's it's so funny that she's uh it, i don't know it's it's reading everything you've written about her it seems like she's uh, somewhat of a of, of a pot stirrer but also when it comes to the law at the time you mentioned in some of your writing that they had and you mentioned earlier that that they have this advisor and these people that are that are supposed to be selling lamb for them legally it sounds like tell me if i have this right they weren't allowed to when she stepped in and said no don't follow john's advice do what i tell you to do legally they weren't supposed to do that were they when you talk about women right yes yeah ab yeah absolutely I, this is my favorite part of the abigail story uh and, and, and let me set up a little bit by saying I kind of went back and forth on her because these bonds that she's dealing in had been paid out to the soldiers who actually fought and won the Revolutionary War and made all those sacrifices, like crossing the Delaware on Christmas night when it was 33 degrees in a, in a nor'easter with snow flashing at their faces and all that. Washington couldn't pay those guys real money, so he gave them basically IOUs. You can't eat a paper, so you got to sell it. You sell it at a fraction of its face value, and then it trades around. So it's kind of an unscrupulous business to be in. And when I studied that aspect of Abigail Adams, yeah, I didn't like her. But then I uh, made what for me was an amazing discovery, and that is the will that she wrote in 1816 when she thought she was dying. She actually lived two more years. But the key fact about that will is that John Adams was still alive. That is, she was a married woman. And married women, in the eyes of the law, this is British English common law, but the Americans retained it even after they declared independence. 
English common law says to you, if you're a woman, the minute you get married, you are basically dead in the eyes of the law. You're covered. They call it coverture because you're covered by your husband. So you could own a massive amount of personal property, and the second you get married, it all goes to you. So bonds would be an example of that. Livestock would be another. And so when she wrote this will, she's giving away all this stuff that technically she didn't own. But over the decades, she had amassed, she'd taken some of this money that she had made for John. She made a ton for John, but she took some of it and she started referring to it. And I love this phrase, this money, which I call mine. So she knew that a smart lawyer like John Adams or even a not so smart lawyer could take it all away from her in a second because she's a married woman. Married women aren't supposed to own personal property, but she did it anyway. And she used it for at one point, my favorite letter that she ever wrote, John, he was in Europe. She's trying to get him to come home. She called herself a widow and tired of being a widow. She wanted her husband back. He was still trying to buy that Vese farm I talked about a minute ago. And she said, look, you don't have the money in your account, but I know where I can borrow you some money to buy that farm. And I'll only do that if you'll come home and guess where she was going to borrow that money from herself. <laughs> uh, so she's basically trying to bribe her husband to come home and she's bribing him with what in the eyes of the law was his own money. But here's one of the coolest things you can say about John Adams. And that is by this time he had accepted this notion of hers. He'd been totally dismissive of her open statements about women's rights. But within the family, he respected her so much, and she that's because she demanded it. He respected her so much that he accepted this idea that there was this property that technically is not hers, but in every sense it was. She could use it to bribe him. She used it to bribe one of her sons to move home at one point. She loved having a, her family around her, as we all do. Uh, and so she used it in all these ways, and then she writes this will. And when John found that will in her papers after her death, he would have been completely within his rights to just rip it up and throw it in the fire. What he actually did was comply with it to the letter. And that's neat that John Adams respected his wife so much, but it also transformed it into a legally binding document because in the eyes of the law, all of that dispositional property, as she called it, was her acting as his agent. That's so awesome. And I think that's a great place to leave our discussion of Abigail Adams today. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about two other things. One is, of course, you wrote the book, Abigail Adams, in 2010. How exciting was it when you found out you'd won the Bancroft Prize? It was, it was amazing. <laughs> I, was, I was at my university at the time. I was teaching, I'm now at the University of South Carolina, but I was then at Richmond and uh, had terrible cell service. And I got this message, something about the library in it. Columbia University, and I went, oh, my gosh, do I have books checked out from there? <laughs> Am I in trouble? But they're the ones who run the bankrupt, so it turned out pretty well. Th that That's fantastic. And then the second thing is, uh, you told me earlier before we started recording that you're working on something new. Are you able to talk about what that project is? Sure. Thank you for letting me plug it. I'm doing a overall history of the American Revolution in, in which I try to integrate the social history and the history of the 99% Native Americans, women, African Americans, with the traditional political history like Washington crossing the Delaware and Yorktown and things like that. My angle is to be the first person to really, lots of people have written about all of them, but you tend to have a chapter on Native Americans and chapter on African Americans and so forth. And I'm really trying to integrate everybody into the same unitary narrative. So uh, an integrated history or a whole-grained history uh, is, is what I'm trying to write. And she will certainly play uh, a big role in it. That's so exciting. We'd love to have you back when you're ready to talk more about that. Dr. Whitney Holton, thank you for joining us for a few minutes for Women's History Month. We really appreciate it. Sure. I'll take you up on that invite, Joe. Thanks a lot. Hey there, trivia fan. I'm Douglas, the trivia man, and I'm swooping in here to save your mediocre day with a healthy and mind-bending dollop of my most excellent factification. Yes, it's a word. You don't need to go look it up. As part of my National Spinach Day celebration, Joe's mom suggested that it makes sense to talk about Popeye. Remember him? 
He's the spinach-eating cartoon character dude who grew some serious guns. Well, you know, nearly as big as these babies, but oh, he did it all by eating spinach. You probably can fill in the blanks. Anyways, he had some friends who also appeared with him, and that's where we'll focus today's trivia question, which is this. What day would Popeye's friend Wimpy pay you for a hamburger if you gave him one today? I'll be back with the answer in just a moment. OG, you own or rent your home, don't you? I do uh, both of those things. And if you're listening to this, ask yourself that question. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. Bet it can be hard work. And you know what's easy? Bundling your policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or your renter's insurance along with your auto policy. And it's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Hey there, trivia nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, with an announcement. Apparently, rubbing this spinach stuff on your arms doesn't make them bigger. Or does it have to sit overnight? I bet that's it. I'm just going to have to let it sit here overnight. I'll take out the good old Wikipedia in a moment, but let's get your answer to today's trivia question, which was this. In Popeye's cartoons, his friend Wimpy would pay you on a certain day if you gave him a hamburger today. What day was that? Tuesday. And if you got it right, pay yourself a compliment and maybe give yourself a spinach rubdown. It feels pretty darn good. See ya. What if it is Tuesday? I always wondered that. I'm like, but what if it's Tuesday right now? Then then what do you tell Wimpy? Well, you're going to pay me right now for the hamburger? I like how they kind of adapted that joke in Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I didn't see Goodwill Hunting. No. Shut the front door. <laughs> it really didn't. You've never seen that. Oh, boy. Here comes the mail. Gosh. Oh, my gosh. Mr. Mister, I've got a movie pass, and I see all the Oscar nominees, but not the winners. I don't do necessarily the winners. That was back Just beforehand, Mr. Salt in the Wound. Check you out. <laughs> hey, let's throw out Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's, or rather, life insurance's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency are disrupting the life insurance industry by focusing on those two things, OG, you value most. Market declines and spinach, I guess. I don't know. Bam. Or your family and your time, whichever, you know. It's why they created a simple way to buy affordable and dependable term life insurance online. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free estimate for coverage and to learn about life insurance the modern way. Stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life, where now they go up to $2 million. Easy peasy. How about that? Let's say hello. Let's say hello today. We're going to throw out the lifeline to our friend Nelson. Say hi, Nelson. Hey, Joe and OG. This is Nelson calling from UNC, who unfortunately did about as well as the Spartans here in March Madness. Glorious. Um, So I was calling about how to talk to my dad about changing my parents' financial advisor. Uh, They started talking to me more about money as I've gotten older. And I recently found out that their financial advisor is also their insurance broker. So I'm pretty sure you can see where this is going. So I just need to know how to respectfully have that conversation and point them more in a path that's going to be more beneficial for them. Thanks and love the show. Bye. So OG, uh, great question. You know, I'm not sure that I'm worried that much about, I mean, don't get me wrong. I tend to like people that are fee- first or fee only advisors, but we don't know that this, uh, this insurance person's necessarily horrible. I've got a couple of words for you, Nelson, mind your own darn business. <laughs> you know, here's the deal, man. You're a, you're, you're a kid. You're not, you might not be a kid. You might be a 50 year old man, but you're still your parents' kid, right? You've got to think about the dynamics of the parent child relationship. I have a uncle who I love dearly, just the greatest, greatest person on earth, right? And I remember asking him one time about why he chose to use a different, a friend of mine as his investment advisor at a substandard organization, in my humble opinion. And he said very plainly, 
Oh, gee, it's because I remember changing your diapers. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're the wrong messenger is what you're saying. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think you just, I think you mind your own business. And if it comes up in conversation, I don't know though. my parents, it, it, it sounds like Nelson's parents have been talking to him about their financial plan. I mean, I, if they, if they have been, then that gives you the opportunity to add some color to the conversation, I suppose. But the tough part about involving yourself in the middle of a relationship, because that's pretty much what you're doing, right? You don't, maybe these guys have been working, mom and dad have been working with this guy for 30 years, right? You're still a kid. I mean, you might be 40 years old, but you're still a kid. You know what I mean? That's kind of why I asked about the whole, like, you know, do you have kids, right? Well, that's why, uh, that's why if I have any thought about this at all, my thought is not about the advisor. It's about the advice, right? Because we get in our head that an advisor is good or bad. And and I have friends that were commission-based advisors. I wouldn't go search for a commission-only advisor if I'm looking for a new, I wouldn't do it. But I do have friends who were commission-only advisors that I would send mom to. I would send right. mom to them in a hurry because they're the most trustworthy yeah. people. And by the way, I know fee-only advisors who are the biggest losers on earth that I wouldn't trust in a million years. I, I just, and it's, and it's you know. It's not the umbrella that you're under that matters, right? It's the quality of the advice that you're getting or giving. Right. But it, I mean, it kind of, it's a good marker to go with a, with somebody who's going to charge fees versus commissions, because we all generally where our bread's buttered, that's where we're, you know, it's, it's going to be easier for a commission person to maybe do the wrong thing. However, in, in this case, like you're talking about with Nelson, we don't know the advisor, but if the advice isn't good, so I wouldn't go after the advisor, Nelson, I would, if you and your dad are having conversations about the advice and the advice they're getting from the advisor is not good, I might then say, oh, you know what? I heard this other thing, like very casually. Oh, I, I read in this respectable place that this other thing is something that's probably better. Or eh, have you seen the fees on those things? I might, uh, you know, and then maybe start poking holes in the advice. Um, but, but we don't know any of that. Yeah, it's really difficult to... Like I said, insert yourself into into that. And I think the best way is if you're going to do it is kind of like what you said, which is if it comes up, you've got to have some ammunition around the advice component, not, you know, Bob is an idiot because he works at ABC company or Bob is probably screwing you because he works at ABC company, you know. It's it's still very difficult, though, because you don't know the whole deal. You, know you what don't I mean? know. Well, well, I mean, he might. Nelson might, but yeah. he didn't give us any clues. Yeah. Yeah. I anyway. think it's about the advice, not the advisor. Okay. Good luck. And mind your business. If you've got a question for the show, head to stackingbenjamins.com. And at the top of the page, you'll see the questions for the show link. Click that link and you'll see all the ways you can get a hold of us. I also, gee, I don't get a, I, I don't say thank you nearly enough. And uh, got to say some thank yous to, and I'm going to miss people because people have done some very nice things for us. But first of all, our friend Jen Hemphill from the Her Money Matters podcast had a new book. And we obviously, we had her on because she's great radio. But look at what she sent us as a thank you. She sent this uh, this cover art from the show that Is we can that hang in the basement. sexy looking guy with the bag on his <laughs> How about that? Yeah. So thanks to Jen. Also thanks to David. And David did something huge. He sent us beer. Oddly enough, it seems to be already gone. (laughs) Richie and I uh, made good use of the beer and they were three different beers and just some, just some great stuff. First one was this uh, Crux Pills, which was a awfully, awfully good beer. Uh, comes from uh, Bend, Oregon. These are all Oregon beers. Second one, I, I love this one, the Abominable Winter Ale, Pretty Hoppy Ale. Uh, that one comes from Hopworks Urban Brewery. And then the third one from Hop Valley, the Light Me Up Lager. So I love these names, and I'm, and I'm just a sucker for packaging. So big thanks to David for helping us stay lubricated here, here in the basement. Also, thanks to the Puglisi's. Vincent Puglisi, of course, was on the show. He sent a great uh, picture of us when they came through town, which was really neat. Went out to dinner with us, and that was fantastic. And a little game, OG, which was this uh, this knot tying game. Nothing we like better than tying ourselves in knots. 
And then third, third, actually fourth. I just got a note from Nick, who's made a Stacking Benjamins card game that he's that he's sending to us. So I can't wait to see that. So thanks to everybody. Thanks to everybody who's listened to the show. Oh, gee, thanks to you for another great show. Thanks, of course, and and Doug's going to thank him too. But thanks again to Woody Holden, Abigail Adams, OG, financial badass. <laughs> Founding mother. It's so great. All right, uh, Doug, what should we have learned today? Now, Joe, kale won't work. And no, you don't put it there. What are you doing? Oh, my God. All right. Hey, everybody. What should you have learned today in between all this bizarre vegetable spinach trivia we've been talking about? First, take some advice from Abigail Adams. We don't get to say that very often. Instead of investing in the safe option, dig into your goals, build some investment savvy, and take the reins. Second, a stock market drop? Sure, it'll drop more, but if you're thinking about your plan instead of the market, You'll stay in control and avoid the panic selling that these markets create in the first place. But the big lesson? Don't rub yourself down with spinach to grow bigger muscles. Apparently, you got to burn the spinach and then read the charred leaves for clues. Something like that. I don't know. Special thanks to Dr. Woody Holton for joining us today. You'll find his book, Abigail Adams, wherever books are sold. When you're done messing around with us, who do you want to teach you some money tricks? That nerd who talks over your head or your favorite basement-based geeks? Kathleen Selmans operates our Stacking Benjamins classroom. And to make up for the fact that we don't teach you anything here on the show, she's created a whole lot of tools you'll absolutely love. Head to learn.stackingbenjamins.com for details. And use coupon code DougRocks for 10% off. Yeah, you're welcome. This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and there's a 73% chance that I played Chuck on Happy Days. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Thanks to Joe's mom for celebrating National Spinach Day with me. You know where you go to hang out and celebrate Spinach Day? The Salad Bar. Yeah, I'll meet you all there. Welcome to the after show. You know, uh, I got this note from Lori. Lori said, Hey Joe, I heard the episode about your coleslaw story. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry to hear you got so sick for people that missed that. I, uh, chowed on some coleslaw that had been sitting out for about eight and a half hours. And I found out that I'm a little harder to uh, kill off than I thought. Because even though for three, but they made a valiant effort. I I made a very good effort of of trying to kill myself. 
Uh, she said, in college, I took a class we called Baby Bio, which was Biology 101 and 102 for non-science majors. I'll never forget one during the bacteria section of the class. The professor told us never to eat anything with mayo in it at a picnic. He said within five minutes of mayo being out of the fridge, bacteria starts growing in it very quickly. I can't imagine the amount of bacteria that was growing in your coleslaw eight hours after it was first served. For 30 years, I've been avoiding all mayo-doused food at gatherings unless I know it was just put out. That one class has paid for itself many times in non-monetary ways. Well, Lori, you don't get to visit the bathroom as many times as I did. So (laughs) I've got that. I found all through Southwest Arkansas and Northeast Texas uh, where the restrooms were for a few days, which was nice. And I got to find out what, uh, you know, people talk about chilling in bed. You know, I was uh, shaking with the chills <laughs> in bed, which might be something, might be something a little different. Yeah, don't do that either. No, no, probably not good. Do not. I, I like the no mayo idea. That sounds like a good, just life guideline. The mayo's been sitting out. Don't put eat the, it. I'm going to put that on my like uh, things. Things I need to teach my kids. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is. Military Appreciation Month, and I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and best careers for military spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.